Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be back with you guys. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry to State. I am with my good friend, as always, William Stockdale, also a ministry associate with Ministry to State. Um, make sure to subscribe and leave a review to this podcast. Um, we would be very appreciative. It helps us with all the, the algorithms and all the things that happen behind the scenes that we're not very uh, uh, knowledgeable about, but we know that reviews will help. So please remember to leave us a five-star review or uh, DM us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Artie Hassler. Will's at Stockdale Will. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback, comments, questions. Go ahead. Would you have something to say? No. Yeah. I, I, you made me think with the complexities and the mystery of the algorithmic nature of the podcast world. And I was like, gosh, which could I do better at explaining Trinitarian theology or how an algorithm works? Like, <laughs> well, probably not surprising, but well, maybe surprising, but I, yeah, I feel like Trinitarian theology is easier to find than a, for a, both require a lot of faith. Very true. A <laughs> uh, lot of stuff going on last night, uh, not to uh, devolve this podcast into uh, almost a strictly ACB podcast, but last night was a very special moment. Uh, where Amy Coney Barrett was conf- uh, confirmed. She is going to be the next Supreme Court Justice. Uh, I know I was watching it live with my wife who was doing some stuff for it for work. Did you see any of the debate around it? Do you mean the voting around it or like the, the news anchors holding their... Well, I meant like what the senators were saying on the floor. No, I, I didn't see any of that. I didn't see any of that. It was really interesting. There's a, there was at one point an exchange between Senators McConnell and Schumer that I think is worth noting just briefly, uh, which was that Senator Schumer went up there and basically left somewhat of a threat against the Republican Party saying that uh, they would live to see the day where they regretted doing this. Um, sort of an ominous threat of, I think, I think it was supposed to convey sort of a, a packing the court sort of sentiment, but um, a very interesting exchange, especially considering, and a lot of people were bringing this up on Twitter, especially considering that the public will is not, is not necessarily set against Amy Coney Barrett. Like the public tends to be generally in favor of her and don't really, I don't really see a huge backlash to her being put on the court um, in the way that a lot of the democratic senators are saying well and i think on on that line help me out with this lisa murkowski first says there's no way i'm gonna vote for whoever trump appoints i just don't i'm not gonna do it i don't think that it's right and then she comes out and says i'm going to vote for whoever trump puts forward and when you talk about the tide of public opinion as it has moved towards her so has murkowski realized it's in her best interest to vote for acb which left a really bad taste in my mouth and a, a level of disappointment where I was like, you're, you're just a, uh, a populist at that point. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I wonder what the difference would have been like if, if we had flip flopped and let's say we had, um, let's say the Republicans had confirmed ACB when they did Kavanaugh and it was Kavanaugh up this time around. Um, Dude, the country could not have handled. <laughs> in 2020. I think you're right about that. So yeah, that was sort of the big thing that happened, but obviously a lot of other stuff going on. Um, I think one of the things that we wanted to bring up real quickly, or, or maybe we can have a longer conversation about it because I know it was going, it was circulating all over the place on Christian Twitter uh, this past week was John Piper's piece, think piece uh, on desiring God. 
um, about the election and sort of his framework, his paradigm for thinking about his presidential vote in 2020. Did you get a chance to, to read that piece? This is twice now you've asked me these questions in which I'm forced to respond in the negative. No, I did not watch the vote on the Senate floor. No, I did not read the article by John Piper. Yes, I heard that both of them were making waves. <laughs> well, what have you been doing? No, I'm just kidding. I know. I, one wonders. One <laughs> wonders. Um, but are you at least familiar at all with sort of what his, his take is, sort of the, what his position is? You know, I don't appreciate feeling like I'm back in the eighth grade again and my <laughs> teacher grilling me in front of the class. Now, Mr. Stockton, you did not read. Yes, I'm aware. But can you think? Are you able to think on your own? That's, that's where I'm left. That's what I've been reduced to. I'm sorry, Will. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I think I have a decent grasp of of the article. But go ahead, for, for, the sake, for the sake of our listeners, how about you lead this one? For the sake of our listeners. Um, I guess what it really comes down to is what is the determining factor in a presidential vote is, I guess I should say in this presidential vote, is it uh, personality or is it policy? And I think what, what John Piper was trying to do was make a case that in this election, the personality of the president, or I guess we should, I should say, we cannot dismiss the weight that the president's personality bears on the culture and the public. And that um, simply saying, yeah, but his policies doesn't work uh, in this election. I think that was his basic premise. And, I, and that was not to then to say, you know, therefore, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Um, he made a very clear point that the Democrat platform is wholly untenable with his faith. And so he, he can't vote for it, um, but he also can't vote for Trump. And so I think it was basically saying it's a no vote or maybe a vote for a certain third party. It's not clear what he'll do. He didn't, he didn't go that American Solidarity Party. Yeah, he didn't go that far, but at least his position was that he did not feel he could vote for either of the candidates. And I think that we need to be um, realistic about the value of John Piper's opinion on this, on this issue. I mean, I think John Piper carries a lot of weight in the evangelical community and, and yeah, what were, what were you going to say? Yeah. I want to bring up, I was taught, I went on a walk and had a phone call with my dad last night and cat caught up in, he'd read the article and I was like, yeah, it's making waves. And he was like, oh, okay. So I guess it is. <laughs> My dad had no idea that it was, you know, trending on Twitter. And he's like, it seemed pretty, pretty strong. And so he's like, well, I guess that's why I guess I did read it right. Cause he was kind of like, huh, I wonder if I'm reading this the way I think I am. And um, one of the things he had mentioned to me was how uh, the corrupting influence of of the person or the quotes that I see here is I think it is a quote. I think it is a drastic mistake to think that the deadly influences of a leader come only through his policies and not also through his person End quote. The idea that Donald Trump is not, even the policies are good can still be corrupting and negative on a country. And then John Piper goes on to look at the Kings of Israel and scripture and how the people kind of seem to follow. However, the Kings went and as the King went, so went the nation. And we we're talking and my dad was kind of like, you know, and it's kind of true of little kids, um, little kids, like, will imitate athletes that they really like. They'll shoot like LeBron or they'll 
those, at least for me, it was like, I'll swing like Ken Griffey Jr., those kind of things. I, I think you can, I at least feel like the, the way that the president leads, that people will mimic that to some degree, whether it's the way that he speaks, like the way Obama spoke, I think had a very real impact on the way that other people spoke and somewhat tried to imitate that timber and tone that he had. Um, so I think there's a, certainly a level in which the leader's disposition personality does have some effect on the people. However, I think it is, is a mistake, and I don't think John Paper is saying this, but to equate the president of the United States with the king of Israel in a couple of ways. One, we're not Israel. Um, and second of all, when the king was in you know, redemptive history, the king was to be the sole figurehead representative of the nation. As the king went, so went the country, which then which then led the way for Jesus to come and to be the final king of Israel, the permanent forever king of Israel. And so it is absolutely biblically true that because of God having set up for Jesus to one day come, of course, as the king fails, so fails the nation, whether it's through death or through some kind of moral failing. And so I think that's different as well. And I think to, to support that, the other side is that the founders knew that that was possible. And so there was an essential need to spread out the powers and that they were like, one day we're going to get some bad dude in office. And whether you think Trump's the bad dude or not is irrelevant to the fact that they thought that one day some bad dude was going to get in the office. And how do we survive this? Well, we survive it through a, we, we survive it through a separation of powers and a strong constitution and a bill of rights. Those are the things that we need to make sure we have in place and that we're a nation of laws. And I think that needs to be remembered here. And I think that kind of, kind of, yes, do we follow our leaders invariably with some variety. However, it is not a one-to-one comparison and this country is built to be more spread out. And, and then I think it leaves the question of if that's the big concern, what about communities? Like what's the responsibility of communities and in, in the fostering of virtue and character? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's a very good point. Uh, really a quickly an aside about the uh, the way that we we mimic our leaders. One thing that I saw in D.C. after President Trump won the election, I think he'd been in office for about six months or so. And I started noticing on my walks to the office in D.C., uh, I'd see more and more staffers rocking the like really bright colored ties that were really like going over their belt buckles. And uh, I, my only thought was, wow, that's a really strong sense to copy the president. Uh, in a really weird way. Um, I don't get the look. It makes no sense to me. But I think your your point about the uh, the shaping power, I guess, that role models have uh, on our nation, particularly our political leaders, and whether or not that is something uh, either desirable or uh, embedded in a Republican system, I, I think your point is correct, uh, which is that, you know, we do a lot of hand-wringing over, you know, the power of the president as a role model, or even just the power of our politicians as role models. I mean, let's, it doesn't just uh, extend to the president. I mean, I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, senators and representatives and governors and, and things like that, too. And I guess my, my question would be, you know, is the problem that very, virt- you know, super virtuous people are not holding office? Well, yeah, like that's definitely an issue and we can talk about it. But I think that the bigger issue for me is who are the role models of our, of our communities and our, and our culture? And my point would be that 
if it's our politicians, then we've strayed very far off of what the founders envisioned and what um, is desirable for our country. I mean, I would hope that my son has a lot more role models than whoever's president of the United States. I mean, I hope it would, would be people in his community and his church. Uh, I pray that it would be uh, people in his family um, and, and things like that. And so, I, and I don't want to say all that to sound dismissive because I, I do think that the way that the, the president uh, is, you know, we should desire a virtuous president. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Um, but I think that the the question of personality and office opens up a very interesting uh, uh, set of questions. Uh, for example, well, what about the the virtuous president? You know, the supposedly very good person who not just like a two faced sort of politician like we like to think of Richard Nixon, but I'm thinking like a genuinely uh, nice person, um, good person, a George W. Bush and a, or a President Obama, uh, who both are perceived to be extremely well liked and you know good men. Um, what about the disastrous policies that some people, you know, would claim that happened underneath them? I mean, that seems to be just as much an issue that we don't want to, we don't really want to talk about as much. And that, that to me would prove the inverse of John Piper's argument. Well, that's a good point in that Donald Trump didn't come out of a vacuum, but the frustration that allowed him to be elected started 50 years ago, uh, you know, and it just continued to to roll and roll and roll and snowball until it erupted with him through nice type of presidents. And this isn't to say that Donald Trump's the guy we need to redeem America. No, only that <laughs> the nice people on their own is not enough, that, that policies and behaviors uh, also have a consequence to them. Also, I, I think to the question of how much impact does the, does the president, his character have on other people after Trump was elected, obviously there were parents who were just despondent and not only were they despondent, but their kids apparently woke up the next morning crying and were despondent because this devil was in the white house now and they were going to whatever. I won't go any further, but they were afraid and kids picked that up from somewhere. And I remember, you know, when Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky scandal came out, I didn't all of a sudden think it was okay for someone to have sex in the, in the Oval Office. And I didn't think it was okay because my parents told me it wasn't okay. I didn't just like take what the king, oh, there we go. I didn't just <laughs> take what the president said as fine and dandy. It was, no, it was, that was, what I saw was mediated by a more immediate community. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'd be interested in sort of unpacking that some more. So... I do think that there are a lot of people who, like John Piper, um, are sort of dismayed by the uh, evangelical response to Trump and the supposedly, you know, what we care about is policies, not his personality sort of sentiment, especially when there was such a backlash to Bill Clinton, uh, who was mostly perceived post-scandal, at least this is my understanding, of being a, for all intents and purposes, a pretty effective political leader despite his personal scandals. Um, so I guess my question is like, how was that mediated? How was that situation mediated to you? Cause I was too young. I don't, I don't remember anything about it. I don't ever remember having a conversation with my parents about it or even knowing what was going on. So how was that situation media? Do you see or feel any differences then and now? 
Well, I don't, I don't know. I no longer go to my parents to get mediation on what happens in the news and current events at the time. It was them. Uh, it was them explained to me in a way that would be appropriate for someone my age, uh, what was going on and um, understood. I, you know, I, one thing I do think is different is I grew up like Todd, you do not, you do not make fun of the president of no matter who they are. I mean, I was not allowed to like tell mean jokes about Clinton or whoever. It just wasn't, it was not okay. I think in a lot of ways that has changed among more people where there is more, but I also wasn't allowed to boo umpires at baseball games either. My parents <laughs> just had a very strong way to put authority in its proper place as they saw it. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's also important to say neither of us are defending Donald Trump's behavior or like his, his person in any way. I think one of the things that through this conversation that you and I both think is important is to not just jump to lambasting evangelicals for supporting Trump and to not just jump immediately to saying that all 81% of them think that he's the Messiah. That is a very small percentage of people who feel that way. There are a lot of people who had to hold their nose and that that has to be understood and has to be, and I don't want to say defended, but just has to be articulated that that's the reality out there for evangelicals who do vote for Trump. And if evangelicals vote for Trump, Biden or Brian Carroll, like that's fine. I don't think that there is one person they can vote for, but uh, we're at the logical end of vote for the platform, not the person. Yeah. I think you're, you're sort of expressing something that I'm feeling too, which is just sort of this weight and this burden that I just want to be, I just want to be done with. Like, I just want it to be over. And um, I tweeted this out the other day, which was that I wish that I could just check a box somewhere on the internet that told people that I'd already voted so that I can just be opted out of all this stuff. Like, I'd, I think what you should be able to do is be able to check a box and say, I voted and therefore it's Christmas season for me already. Like, oh. so you can just start moving on to advertising for Christmas stuff. <laughs> uh, because- Business would be so on board with that. I mean, come on. I mean, that would be so much more enjoyable than what I'm dealing with now. I mean, I don't know if you, you saw it, but you know, we woke up to the Expensify, the infamous Expensify email oh, that went out that a bunch of people were tweeting about. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, some people might, might know this. I mean, I know, I know a lot of organizations use Expensify uh, to do expense reports, but essentially everyone woke up to an email directly from their CEO that was saying, you need to vote for Joe Biden um his argument for why he why he as the ceo of a um software company that processes expense reports his defense for sending this email was people don't do expense reports in a civil war which just felt very uh irresponsible what yeah there's nothing subtle about that but i think it reveals this point that like you know, we're talking specifically within the evangelical community, but it's just true nationally and across all different communities, which is that voting has now become this, this massive event, this, um, this moment that we all have to partake together. And, and um, I didn't mean to invoke sacrament language, but, you know, there's sort of that at play too. Um, but it just seems to me that, you know, how many more think pieces could possibly get written at this point? How many more cases are there to vote a certain way? And is the fact that people are 
sort of publishing these things into the void proof that there isn't really an answer for this question and that it's really a matter of personal judgment and uh, following your conscience. It, you know, it, it kind of reveals this other thing that, you know, I was texting you back and forth because it was kind of the way I was wrestling with it, which is, you know, we talked about voting as a, a way of serving uh, or loving your neighbor and as sort of an act of Christian fidelity. And I think one of the things that I wrestle with with that argument is that it sort of forces this relational paradigm onto an action that is predominantly embedded in an individualistic one. And I know you had sort of pushed back on me a little bit on that, but I don't know. That's something that I'm wrestling with. And I'm kind of, it's like, we're just constantly like grinding against these two things that I don't think can be really as compatible as people want it to be. Does that make sense? Look, we're, we're a week away from the election right now. And the best thing we can do at this time is pray and pray that our hearts uh, are prepared for whatever happens in the election results and pray for this country and pray for the leader, be he new or the same. Um, Cause it, it, it is probably not super prudent to just say that you can count out Donald Trump right now. I, that it seems very unlikely that he wins, but it also, I think there you can make many arguments for why he could still end up winning. And that's just, you know, so keep that open. Uh, some other news that happened this past week, um, we get the papal declaration through the uh, documentary that was not ex cathedra, but was an opinion that he put out. And then you also have the renewal of the agreement between the Vatican and Beijing for their church over there. And two issues that are very uh, confusing. Neither of us are Roman Catholic, obviously. Um, but we do pay attention to these for a couple reasons. One is that a lot of social policy is led by the Roman Catholics. Like they have a very strong history of a very robust approach to public theology and typically are, are strong advocates of a more um, of traditional marriage and pro-life and care for the poor and the needy. They, they are very good about that. Uh, they have a strong just war tradition. I mean, you can name a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, are there shout out our Catholic brothers and sisters. That's right. That's right. We're thankful for you. And, but these latest comments have left something of a confusion and a question of what exactly are we to make of them and what exactly do they mean for the future of Roman Catholicism? Uh, how is this going to affect people who are already the, the Catholic faithful that are already in the church? What does this mean for people who were like, I'd love to be Catholic, but I can't because I don't have view of their, I don't agree with their view of same sex marriage. Um, the China thing I think is super concerning, especially for a Pope that is, has made as many comments as he has about capitalism and about criticizing America for its immigration rules and then works out a deal with a crazy, corrupt, uh, oppressive dictatorship, basically. I mean, as much power since Mao is where we are with Xi Jinping. I, that's what he has. Uh, to, to make this deal, to allow the church and the Chinese state to work together in choosing bishops, that's, it's, it's unsettling at the very least. I need to do a lot more reading into it and, and understanding the you know, the exact context, but it does seem to appear to be 
a interesting case study in how does the church interact with corrupt fallen regimes, you know? I mean, I, I would imagine, I mean, I'm not privy to the conversations. I don't know what's going on. I would imagine, you know, somewhat of the argument being, well, hey, anything is better than underground status. Um, you know, we want to be al- just allowed to be there. And so, you know, we'll, we'll be willing to negotiate and do anything we can to get there. I'm not saying that that's like good or anything. And I don't even know if that's really what's going on. I mean, I could be completely off base. Um, so just <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. But um, it is very curious, especially when you consider when you deal, the, when you have those sort of dealings, um, what are the implications for what the state can decide and do. I guess my wife was telling me about this story of, I guess there's going to be communist party sanctioned reading of scripture. Um, Particularly, they looked at the story uh, with the the woman caught in adultery. And the communist party Bible says that Jesus admits to her that he is also a sinner and then partakes in stoning her, Um, which obviously, yeah, which is obviously horrible sacrilege and terrible uh, slander against the risen Lord. But you have to wonder like, okay, are those sort of dealings worth it? You know what I mean? No. Yeah. See, Will's, Will's got the answer. Um, no, it's not worth it. You do right. not, that's a non-negotiable. Right. And uh, not to mention the underground church. Yes, it is persecuted, but you have a couple things here. What are the implications of this for Protestant churches or churches of other denominations that do not get this kind of special privilege for the, from the Chinese government who say, we want to continue to worship. We are not willing to compromise and be state sanctioned because of the things that we have to give up. And does this mean that if the Catholic church gets this favored status over other denominations, that means greater persecution for the underground church because the Chinese government knows underground churches and for the most part where they're operating. Um, they, they know that they gathered. I was at, at a service one time and um, there were Chinese officer, police officers who were in the worship service with us and they were there monitoring. Um, so what about the other brothers and sisters who get thrown under the bus because of this? And you know, you're that, that kind of, of changing of scripture is very disconcerting. I mean, is, is, is awful. And that that's already being published or who that, that's not, that's not backed by any church. That's just a communist Bible. Yeah. That's my understanding of it. I need to do some more research into it. I mean, who knows? This could be a complete fake news story. I have no idea. My, my wife is telling me it's coming from a credible source, so I, I'm not too worried about it, but um, I, I do think that Does she listened to the show. She is. She's a good listener of the show. Well, I just want to ask because I mean, it depends on what we say next. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there it is a, a good case study about you know how does the church relate to corrupt regimes? How do we deal with the negotiations and how do we deal with the um, you know those sort of issues? Obviously, we would look at something like that and say that's reprehensible. Like the not that's a non-negotiable. What do you think about the uh, civil union comment from the Pope? Not all that surprising. Um, I do think the most interesting part of the whole storyline was like the complete revisionist history that came about with his comments. Uh, there were a lot of people that were coming at, you know, out after he said that 
saying, well, hey, if, if the church had just been on top of this um, from the beginning, if we had not done so much to oppose same-sex marriage and instead have really thought about the, the equal rep rights of our uh, LGBTQ fellow citizens and really embraced civil unions, we could have avoided a post-Obergefell nation. And I just don't think that that to be true. I don't find that um, an accurate reading of what was going on, especially places like California leading up to the Prop 8 debate. Uh, even, after, even after the latest Supreme Court decision this summer, we all got, I mean, if you were signed up, it was, you know, for more of the left-leaning uh, think tanks up here. It's, you know, the decision was just made in favor of trans rights. Join us on Monday for a discussion about the next steps in our fight. It doesn't, I mean, you, you have to take more steps. And so I don't think that civil unions would have quelled anything. Yeah, I would generally agree. Um, but I, I guess I don't find the, the comments that surprising. Um, I think it definitely opens up the door um, for conversations about what does the American church, as broadly as you want to define that, uh, from its most progressive wings to its most conservative wings uh, look like in this new era. I think you could, I think you could generally say that we are moving into sort of a different, you know, just as we lived in a pre and post nine 11, I think it's fair to say that we're going to live in a pre and post COVID. And I do think that the church looks really different pre COVID and post COVID. Um, I think that there was this real emphasis on progressive versus conservative theology. Uh, Maybe you could even say an imminent or transcendent framework that you're dealing with when it comes to public works and, and ethics. It seems to me that in a, in a post-COVID landscape, especially with uh, things like that are coming out of, you know, comments coming from uh, the Pope about like same-sex civil unions, you know, is, is really the question of, is the church another social club or another participatory group that people engage with that's on bar or equal to, you know, things like um, neighborhood associations, their workplaces, you know, just another component of their identity? Or is the church the place where you find your identity and then proceed outward? Is it is faith the thing that I, that defines you and then defines everything else in your life? I think that's going to be the thing that we talk about in a post-COVID uh, culture. And I think that that's sort of the divide that this statement coming out from the Pope uh, really exemplifies. This takes us all the way back to how we started with the John Piper article and the question of where is virtue and character formulated and formed. It is within those really the closest communities. That's where our strongest ideas of character and virtue are going to come from, those places that we think are um, are the most authoritative, are the most, uh, can speak most powerfully into the good and the bad. And uh, yeah, I, I, I want to say this also, um, we talk about pre-COVID, post-COVID, and this is just something that's been on my mind a lot recently, but people keep saying that COVID is an unprecedented time. And that is false. COVID is not unprecedented. We have been dealing with pandemics for as long as there has been civilization. Uh, what is unprecedented, truly matter-of-factly, is our response to it. Uh, and 
COVID is not a decision-making virus. We make decisions in response to it. And I think um, a lot of leaders I see seem to be kind of uh, removing the responsibility from themselves by saying, you know, COVID has shut down businesses or COVID has shut down the economy or COVID has changed the way we're living. It's like, well, like that's kind of true, but not entirely. Uh, we have chosen to respond to it in a certain way. And um, I think that better decisions will be made if we can honestly own up to that. Yes, I agree. I, I want to be clear with that when I say a pre-COVID and a post-COVID landscape, I mean, I am talking about the political implications of COVID. I mean, from the very beginning, it's, it seems to me that COVID was as much a political crisis as it was a public health crisis. Um, I mean, if you think about the debates that we have about COVID, I mean, the strongest ones, the most uh, contentious ones almost have nothing to do with the, the fight to battle the virus and how almost has everything to do with how are communities operating and adjusting to, you know, a, a, a COVID reality um, or disreality if you're of that inclination um are you a covid denier i'm not a covid truther i'm not a covid denier yeah Um, yeah. but i i do think that um when you look at like what's the biggest debate about covid right now it seems to me to be like you know can i live my life the way i want to or not you know can i do i have to wear a mask out in public can my church meet to me those aren't virus related questions those are massive political questions and um they would be they would exist even if there was something you know it doesn't have to be a a virus to do something like that um and so uh when i talk about pre post covid experiences it's those kind of things uh so um well hey we're wrapping up on time and my son i don't know if you can hear me here but my son is just demanding that i get off the mic right now his his mom just went to go to orange theory so i better go do some babysitting it is um, but this has been a great episode, Will. Thank you very much for your thoughts and commentary. I, I, I think there's an interesting conversation here next about um, particularly what's going on with uh, the Roman Catholic Church and matters of, of a pre- and post-COVID experience. Maybe we can explore that later. But um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Make sure to uh, subscribe and leave us a review. Follow us uh, at Ministry State uh, and visit ministrystate.org. And with that, we'll see you guys again next week.